probably for the first time, with an honest effort to acknowledge my own biases. Right? So we get into the Torah movement and we say, uh, you know, we're, we're finally reading scripture without the Christian bias, but we bring a new bias.
on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom who are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, as one untimely born, uh, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the assembly of God. All right. people are still on live stream. Hi, if you are. Um, so we just read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to like 10, and then let's see, actually I can tell you, 1 to 11, and then 20 to like approximately 28 or something. So you didn't miss that much. All right. So for Paul, this is the good news. The issue of Nazareth is king. He also says things though, 
in this little creedal statement about um, how this Yeshua of Nazareth, his story matches the scriptural story. He says the events of his life happen according to the Bible, the Tanakh. Okay? But not only that, he goes on to say that this king, anointed by God, is going to defeat God's enemies, the last of which is death. Okay? So what is that all about? And why does that matter? So let's back way, 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 way up. And let's start at the beginning of the scriptural story. Because as I've said before, and I'll say it again, and if it hurts anybody's feelings, which I don't think it will in this room, um, good. Uh, any presentation of the gospel, of the good news, without the story of Israel is not the gospel. The whole story of Yeshua of Nazareth, according to one of the earliest apostles, is tied up in the story of Scripture. He says all of this happened according to the Scripture. All of this happened according to the Scripture, right? He said it. He said it like two or three times. So we got to start way, way in the beginning. So whenever it comes to death and mortality, where do we see the, these things for the first time? <laughs> Yeah, our most beloved book here at OAM. <laughs> so in Genesis 2, uh, God makes man from dust, which is an expression of mortality. From dust you came, to dust you will return. The man is made immortal. But then in the garden, God puts a tree of life and a tree of knowing good and evil. This mortal human is given access to the tree of life. He's given access to God. But then the humans choose not to follow God's rules. And God says, on the day that you eat of the tree of knowing good and evil, you will surely what? But did they? What happened? They were sent away. They were exiled. So in Genesis, we get our first look of death, of being removed from God's presence, our first look at the mortality of humans. Okay? Okay. But there are a few other themes that we have to zero in on here really quick before we hit the ground running. Um, I've already alluded to it by talking about some of this, but where's the first time we see God dwelling with humans? In the garden. Specifically Genesis 1, before, gar before the garden, where God perfectly orders and functions a cosmos to be a temple in which he dwells with humanity. Okay? Okay. And what about the first time we hear about the kingdom of God? It's kind of a trick question, so I'm being a little rude. Um, it's also in Genesis 1. Um, Genesis 1, 28 through 30, I think it is. God says, uh, be fruitful and multiply. Subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Those verbs have to do with ruling, reigning and ruling. So, we got kingdom of God. We got God dwelling with humans. We get our first look at mortality and death. And this guy, Paul, that we're talking about, he's really weird, and he says strange things sometimes, and we get sort of mad at him. But he goes on and on about um, the consequences of sin 
which are what? Ah, do we not see that too in the first three chapters of our Bible? The consequences of the human's sins are that they are exiled from the presence of God, which is a type of death. On the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Okay? So, we have God dwelling with humans. We have the kingdom of God. We have mortality and death. Yes, everyone tracking. All right, great. So, let's, uh, let's start to map Yeshua's world a little bit now that we got some of these precursors out of the way. Um, I'm going to put this down for a sec. So, so we have now the beginning of Israel's story. We can already, hopefully, you can already kind of see in your mind's eye where Paul from 1 Corinthians 15 is getting some of his motifs. God dwelling, which is in that section of 1 Corinthians 15 that we talked about. Uh, the kingdom of God, which is also in that section. And God undoing death or defeating uh, our last enemy, which is ultimately um, death. So before I can talk about Yeshua and him overcoming death and defeating death, I want to map his world a little bit. And this is where it's going to be a lot of review. But before we can even talk about the New Testament and, and talk about Yeshua, we have to understand his world. This is of utmost importance. So the first thing that we have to, underst we have to understand is exile and return. In Yeshua's day, the people have been back in the land for what? Just a couple of generations? They have been exiled to Babylon. And even though they were exiled, the prophets promised these grand promises of what it would be like when they returned. And when they returned, it wasn't really like that. Because, see, they were taken into Babylon, and then Babylon was swallowed up by Persia, and the Persians let them go home and rebuild the temple. But then the Persians are swallowed up by the Greeks. And they're not very nice. We just celebrated a holiday uh, that has to do with a Jewish revolt against the Greeks. Um, and then the Greeks ultimately are swallowed up by the Romans. So the whole time that they're back in the land, it doesn't feel like they're actually home. It doesn't feel like the promises of God have been fulfilled. And if God is dwelling in this temple that we've rebuilt, it sure doesn't feel like it. We have to get into their brain. This is how they feel. And, and so um, put yourself there for a second. It's easy for us to talk. It's easy for me to talk about it and for you to listen or for us to talk about it in general. But really put yourself there and think about the crisis of faith that this would create for you. Your Bible promises something in which you are living in now and it is not the case. God promised that whenever you came back to the land, it would be like a new Eden. God promised that whenever he brought you out of Babylon, it would be like an exodus from Egypt. And instead, you're just oppressed like the slaves in Egypt. So this creates a whole crisis of faith for them. So that's the first thing we have to understand, exile and return. The second thing we have to understand is uh, the Jewish response to Hellenism. Now, we've talked about Hellenism. Hellenism is basically Greek culture, just to put it in a nutshell. Hellenism is Greek culture. Um, so the Jewish people are faced 
now with a new set of problems. Do we assimilate with the Greeks and the cultures around us, or do we remain a distinct people group? Okay? And from this debate and from this one really massive question comes five major responses. <coughs> Who knows what they are? The Pharisees, the Zealots, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Okay? And I'm going to give you one for bonus points. What's called in Hebrew Am Haaretz, the people of the land. And these are the people that all of these responses are trying to win over. Okay? That's very key and crucial as well. The people of the land, the everyday people who are just at the end of their rope, trying to make ends meet, those are the people that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes, so on and so forth, are trying to win over. Because they think that their cause is the response to the Hellenistic problem. And in turn, to the problem of exile and return. Does that make sense? Is everyone tracking so far? Okay. And then the third thing we have to talk about is that everything about their religion was temple-centric. Everything. Okay? So, PJ, remember he did the circle and he did all the little things that came off of it and he showed how everything is tied to the temple? I'm going to take it a step further and I'll reiterate it here in a minute maybe if I remember this is controversial. <laughs> it shouldn't be because I, I, the only reason why I think it's controversial is because I remember the first time I heard it, how bad it hurt my feelings. Um, the whole point of the Torah is the temple. See, God delivered his people from Egypt so that he could dwell with them. But he cannot do that if they don't know how to live in his midst. If they don't know the difference between holy and common. If they don't know the difference between pure and impure. So the funny thing is, we really are running around here making up all this wacky stuff about the Torah, not learning anything about the temple, and the whole point of the temple, uh, the whole point of the Torah is the temple. That's the whole reason it was given. Okay? Anyway, I'm not going to keep going there, even though I probably could. All right. So everything about their religion is temple-centric. They believe that God dwells in their midst in a holy house. They still, like, in his day, they go and make offerings there. Okay? So, with that in mind, we need to talk about a couple of the, uh, the binaries of a world that has a temple. Okay? And this is going to be extremely hard for us because we don't have a temple. We don't really know what it's like, but I think that this will hopefully be a little bit helpful. Okay. It's going to be a real challenge of my skills. All this with my right. So, <laughs> feel free to talk amongst yourselves and share recipes. Yes? No? Yes? No? No. No. All right. Doesn't matter. Okay. Binaries. Okay. 
Test, 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 test. Yay. still hear me yes it's still coming through the speaker yeah okay cool all right all right I for one am having a great time it's keeping me on my toes <laughs> all right so uh, yeah thank you chill I appreciate it all right so uh, I wrote this a little too big so on two ends of the spectrum we have uh, holiness, okay, and then we have, uh, I'll say maybe impurity, okay. So these two forces are diametrically opposed to one another, all right. So holiness is an active and contagious force, okay. In other words, if you go to the temple and touch a holy object, there is potential for you to become holy. Okay? It is contagious. However, so is impurity. So if you are impure and you touch a holy object or approach a holy object, either the holiness is going to gobble it up or it's going to retreat. And in the recent history of the Jewish people during the time of Yeshua in the first century the holiness of God in the temple retreated it left the house because the impurities got too strong so this is in the forefront of their mind so whenever the Pharisees get criticized for their care and their concern for purity you have to understand we give them a lot of flack that, and we don't, we, we don't even know their worldview. We don't know why they think the way they think. All right. So then, of course, uh, here, let me, just, let me just do this, and then I'll talk about it. Something can be holy and pure. It can be... and impure okay and then we also have common so it can be common and pure or it's better if I just do it this way and then I'll talk about it instead of writing little by little common and impure alright so holiness out of all these out of all this right here the only two of these forces that are opposed are holiness and impurity, okay? However, a couple of these things are opposites, so this gets really confusing, but try to stay with me. Something cannot be holy and common at the same time. They are opposites of each other, okay? So you cannot be at the same time holy and common. It's not a thing, okay? Just like you cannot at the same time be, uh, sorry, hold on, I think I messed up here. Impure, holy and pure. Nope, nope, that's right. Just like you cannot be impure and pure at the same time. They're opposites, right? They're opposites of each other. They cannot exist in the same vessel. You can't be holy and common at the same time. You can't be pure and impure at the same time. Does that make sense? Everyone tracking? Okay, but holiness and impurity are active living forces that are contagious. 
Okay, does that make sense? Okay, because that was hard. That, that was hard to explain, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and I really thought hard about how I was going to explain it, and I thought that would be good, and I don't think that it was. So, um, anyway, all right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, it's also worth pointing out that uh, being common, sometimes your translations say profane, Okay, I don't like that because uh, of the way we use prof profanity. We use that word in common everyday English. It has a connotation for us. Because common is not in and of itself sinful, and neither is impurity. Okay, this is worth noting. Again, this is all very confusing. So I'll try my best in a second to recap this in like a sentence. Okay, so if something is common, as in the opposite of holy, it is not sinful. If something is impure, as in the opposite of pure, it is not sinful. Okay? It can be. For instance, if something that is holy is treated as if it's common, like Shabbat or the temple, that is a sin. Or, if something that is common encroaches on the holy, that can also be a sin. Conversely, if someone or something that is impure is not purified in the right way at the right time, that can become a sin. So these things are not in and of themselves sinful, but they can become that. Is everyone tracking? Okay. So, a lot of the miracles of Yeshua that concern ritual purity... Um, are sort of wrong from jump. And I have to admit, I didn't even do a great job of this whenever we got to Matthew chapters 8 and 9. Because you see, compassion and the purity system have as much to do with each other as a fish and a bicycle. In other words, by Yeshua healing the impure, it's not... God's compassion over and against the purity system. So to correct what I just said about the bicycle and the fish, they are kind of related because this system is infused with compassion. You see, the, the purity system is what, number one, keeps God's presence in the midst of the people. Okay? So it keeps God's presence in the midst of the people. It's also what protects the people from a holy God. Okay? So it keeps God's presence in the midst of the people, and it protects the people from a holy God. Let me give you an example. Um, I really love electricity. I think it's pretty good. I like it when I'm in the midst of it. It helps me out. However, I don't put forks in the outlet or climb up on highline poles and start playing with it. Because while it's good, it is dangerous. God is holy, but he's not safe. Okay? One of my uh, favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, this is for you, Boyds. You're welcome. Uh, this is from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Okay, and I think this illustrates the, the point perfectly. Um, 
See, C.S. Lewis is, is known for using Christian imagery in his, in his works of fiction. So this is whenever uh, Susan finds out that Aslan is a lion and not a person. Okay? She asks, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Miss Beaver responds, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. So then Lucy sort of reiterates the question. She says, then he isn't safe. To which Mr. Mr. Beaver this time says, safe? Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So he's good, he's holy, but he's not necessarily safe. Everyone track it. Okay. So, if impurity is accumulated... God's presence will leave the house. No one wants to live in a dirty house, including God. Okay? So, uh, let's take a closer look at impurity. Um, sorry, I'm really trying not to go long, but I really love this, and I'm a nerd. Um, so, conflating ritual purity with what I'll call, for the sake of calling it something, moral impurity, can color our readings of the gospel wrongly. Okay? I don't even like putting this dichotomy of ritual impurity versus moral impurity. I, I, I don't like it for a couple of reasons, but uh, I think that it's helpful for us to, to talk about and think about. So give me a second while I erase this. All right. So... We'll have, uh, we'll have ritual impurity here. And we'll have uh, what I'll call moral impurity. Over here. Okay? So, this one it's unavoidable. The purity system Assumes from get-go that if you are a living, breathing, red-blooded human, per- human being, you will contract ritual impurity at some point in your life. Okay? You're going to be around someone who died. You're going to procreate. You're going to maybe contract a skin disease, which we wrongly call leprosy. And these things make you ritually impure. Again, not a sin, just a fact of life. It can become a sin if you don't do the proper cleansing in a timely manner. Okay? Uh, it usually comes from a natural substance. It's communicable, meaning it can be passed on. Remember, it's contagious. Um, it can be bathed away. It's not a sin. Not a sin until you make the wrong move. Not a sin unless you don't take care of the impurity. Or if you approach something pure and holy in an impure state. Got it. Everyone's still tracking. Have I lost you? Okay. So let's talk about this. This is avoidable. The prophets say, repent. 
In other words, turn from your sin and stop doing it. Sin, moral impurity is avoidable. Um, it happens from an action. It's not natural. It just, it's something you do. It's not inside of you. It's not, it's not natural like ritual impurity. It's not a fact of life. It's something you do. It's not communicable. In other words, it's not contagious. Can it affect everyone? Yes, it can. But it's not contagious in the way purity and holiness are. Okay? And this one is a sin or an abomination. So I don't think I'm going to write on the board anymore. But who knows? I might get frisky here in a minute. All right. Um, so. One sec, guys. Um, all right. So let's talk about impurity and what all of the uh, strongest sources of impurity have in common. Okay? The reason why I started with the intro the way that I did is because each of the impurities have one thing in common. They have to do with or are closely associated with our mortality and death. The strongest of the ritual impurities are the most closely associated with those two things. Our mortality and our death. Okay, so I'm about to read something from Leviticus. I want you to think Eden, death is exile. This concerns impurities. Leviticus 15:31. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their impurity, so that they do not die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. We have impurity associated with death. Okay. The three strongest types of impurity are discharge, leprosy, and corpse impurity. Okay? They all reflect the reality of death and mortality and are a picture of the exile from Eden. This is from Numbers 5. Command the Israelites to put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean or impure through contact with a corpse. They shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp. Do you guys see the Eden picture? These impure people are put outside the camp. Think Eden. You shall put them outside the camp. They must not defile their camp where I dwell among them. So what do these three, three things have to do with death? Well, a corpse is obviously a dead body. Okay, The leper appears like a corpse. And the discharge is literally the loss of life, the life force that's found in genital fluids. So I want to be very careful here. Because one of the sources of impurity that comes from discharge has to do with um, uh, childbirth. Okay, I want to be very, very careful here. So it's not that a woman who births a child is now associated with death. 
I want to be very careful. That's why I'm using words like mortality and death. Um, this comes from Genesis Rabbah. Okay, Genesis Rabbah, which is uh, Midrashic. And uh, this is supposedly from a rabbi of the first century. Uh, his name's uh, Rabbi Azariah. It was taught, whatever has offspring dies, decays, is created, but cannot create. But what has no offspring neither dies nor decays, creates, but is not created. Rabbi Azariah said in the name of the Rav, this was said in reference to the one above. Okay, so the first thing we can get from this quote is that intercourse and childbirth by default have to do with mortality. You're creating a human who, and you will die, and they themselves will die one day. Okay? But also, he contrasts the human plight of mortality versus the living God who is immortal. Okay? So, what is holy then is the antithesis of death and mortality. So God is a God of life. He is the antithesis of impurity, of the common, of all things, death and mortality. Okay? This comes from uh, a Jewish scholar named Jacob Milgram. Milgram is the giant shoulders on which every modern scholar of Leviticus stands. Listen to what he says. This is powerful. The source of holiness resides with God. It is imperative for Israel to control the occurrence of impurity, lest it impinge on the reality of the holy God. The forces pitted against each other in the cosmic struggle are no longer the benevolent and demonic deities that populate the mythologies of Israel's neighbors. But the forces of life and death set loose by humans themselves through their obedience to or defiance of God's commands. So, what Milgram is saying is that in the priestly mind, through which the book of Leviticus is written, through which the first couple chapters of Genesis are written, uh, most scholars think those are priestly texts, that for a priest, it's not about demonic beings. It's not about a pantheon of gods anymore. It's about human beings having the ability through their obedience or disobedience to unleash the very forces of life and death. Alright, so we've talked all this impurity talk. It probably got a little boring for some of y'all. I understand. So, given that God made a temple in the beginning, right, and he made these little king-priest humans, I say little, I am one, whatever, uh, to protect the sacred space, to abound in life, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, have dominion over it, but they chose death. So now we have to ask ourselves, um, what's God going to do about that? If we're all trying to get back to the Garden of Eden, if the, if the biblical story is one big story of exile and return, and that exile is a type of death, we have to ask ourselves, what's God going to do about that? Is there a hope that God is going to undo death? <laughs> well, the funny thing is, whenever you turn to the Tanakh, uh, the silence is deafening. 
but not completely. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there's a lot of talk about new creation and new Eden, uh, which, of course, is inherently temple-y, right? Eden is a temple. Ezekiel, we just read from, his, we just read from him in the Haftarot, in chapters 40 through 48, he imagines bigger, larger, more protective barriers between God and the people, so that way the presence never leaves again. However, there's one special group of people who became very, very concerned with this issue. Um, Second Temple Jews. And what we call an apocalyptic worldview. Because you see, the priests who pinned Leviticus may not have been concerned with demonic, impure forces in the way the Second Temple Jew was, but they certainly were. They were very concerned with demons and the demonic and impure forces. And they imagined a day, they imagined a day when God would set, set right the world, where he would invade an impure space with agents of purity, and he would undo death. That he would make right what the first humans did wrong. So allow me for just a moment, if I can, to demystify uh, apocalypticism just a little bit. So apocalyptic Jews are very, very, very concerned with God undoing death and God setting right all of the wrongs of the present age, which they believe comes from impurity, whose source is our mortality and death. They're very concerned with God undoing death. So we hear apocalypticism and we think like the book of Revelation. We're automatically confused. We don't know what to think about or do about it. But allow me to demystify it a little bit. I want to do a little experiment and just humor me. I'm going to name a bunch of things. And I want you to think if you believe them. If you believe these things I'm about to say. Or have some concept of these things. And if you do, I'm going to ask that you raise your hand at the end. But wait till the end. Do you have some concept of a coming judgment? Do you have a concept of God's impending wrath on the unrighteous? Do you have a concept of the resurrection of the dead? Do you have a concept of... Ooh, I'm about to get... I'm about to... I'm about to... uh, Yep. Do you have a concept of the very people for whom you think have the responsibility to protect you and your national identity forsaking righteousness and your foundational documents do you have uh, some concept of an active divine realm both good and evil have you or heard of someone or even believe in uh, visions and dreams through which you believe God spoke with you and communicated some insight which was previously unseen to you if you have a concept of one or all of those things please raise your hand pretty significant congratulations if you raised your hand you have a lot in common with a second temple Jew (laughs) your worldview is apocalyptic and you just didn't know it because you see modern Judaism and Christianity and whatever the heck we are have inherited an apocalyptic faith (laughs) we've inherited an apocalyptic faith we are the product we are the inheritors of second temple Judaism the religions that we now ponder and take part in are a product of that time So, you're apocalyptic. Hopefully now you see how 
down to earth and even um, part of your everyday life apocalypticism is. So, it's an apocalyptic idea that God is going to make the world right. And it's worth noting that in apocalyptic thought, there's no end of the world. Okay? There's no end of the world. Not even in the book of Revelation. They don't imagine that God is going to end the world. They imagine that God is going to make the present world right and start a new era of righteousness and peace where the kingdom of God reigns forever and ever. By the way, the kingdom of God is a common phrase in apocalyptic literature. All right, so let's actually get in the New Testament now. It's worth noting, I'm really glad that I just looked and saw this. How does an apocalyptic worldview happen? We're going to talk about apocalyptic literature way later, so it's, I, in my opinion, it's good that you hear some of this now. First of all, I just showed you how much apocalypticism has in common with your religious beliefs. But it's important to talk about what, how this belief system even starts. Apocalypticism is a form of resistance. When you cannot beat your enemies through strength and might, you protest through strict obedience. Can you think of a couple of Jewish, Jewish sects that responded to Hellenism, that responded with strict obedience? that wrote apocalyptic texts? I can think of a couple. You also, you double down on your hopes because you can't defeat your, men, your enemies by might, so you hope that God is going to act on your behalf. You're going to do as best as you can, but you hope that ultimately God will be the one to defeat your enemies. And lastly, this is the most important part, and this is where we get, this is why we use the term apocalyptic. Apocalypticism is a form of resistance because you refuse to see the world through the viewpoint, through the lens of the wicked and the oppressor, and you insist on seeing the world for what you believe God has done and will do. The world is uncovered for you. You can't see it for the way that the world sees it. You can only see it for what God has done and will do, which is why they have all these visions of the future. And it's why they talk, they relate it to books of the past, like the Exodus. Because that's the only way they can see the world. They refuse to see it through the lens of the people who have made them downtrodden. Okay. So, how are we doing? All right, because we haven't even really gotten into the good parts yet, so. <laughs> and and all, all, in, uh, all in just under an hour. I'm pretty proud of myself. Is everybody okay? Because I want to keep going, but if you're not okay, we can, we can make kiddush. If, you, if your stomach's rumble, raise your hand. Um, all right. So the first place we need to start. We talked about purity and impurity and why that matters and the worldviews that that matters most for and how the purity system has to do with God's holiness, which represents the epitome of life, versus impurity, which represents mortality and death. So let's look at some of these things in the New Testament. First and foremost, in Luke 2, we get Yeshua's birth. Luke 2, verse 22. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, the Torah of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So here we see Yeshua's family concerned with ritual purity. They're concerned with not encroaching on God's holiness. 
His mother became impure through childbirth, and so did the child, which is an aspect of this that isn't talked about. When people try to make God out to be a misogynist because of the laws of impurity that concern the new mom in Leviticus, they don't ever talk about the fact that the baby becomes impure as well. Okay? So it's not that God hates women. He obviously hates babies too. <laughs> Just kidding. That's a joke. All right. <laughs> All right. So then we get this guy named John the Baptist. Right? He's on the opening pages of every single gospel. And his, he resembles the concerns for ritual purity um, of other sects of Judaism at the time, specifically the Essenes. Okay? And they are sort of having fun with bleeding together moral and ritual impurity. Okay? They're kind of, they're, this little boundary right here, they're toying with it a little bit. They're not completely getting rid of it, but they're toying with it a little bit. Okay? This comes from the community rule at Qumran. Qumran is the place where the Essenes wrote and sorted their, their texts. It says, The sinner will not become pure by the deeds of atonement, nor will he be purified by the purifying waters, or made holy by seas or rivers, nor will he be purified by all the waters of washing. Impure, impure will he be all the days he rejects the decrees of God. Do you understand what, he, what this says? It says you can wash all you want in any rivers of water that you want, until you repent and return to God and stop disobeying his Torah, you will never be clean. And so then, what do we get? We get this apocalyptic preacher out in the wilderness saying, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. Repent of your sins. And he's washing them in the most powerful ritual detergent that he has available to him. Because he's not, he doesn't, he's not a... He is of priestly lineage, but he's not a priest operating in the temple. All he can do is wash people in Maim Chaim, living water. It's the most powerful detergent he has at hand. He's washing people there. But specifically, what river is he washing them in? The Jordan. Okay. The place where Naaman, the leper, is healed of leprosy and impurity. It's also the place where Joshua brings the people of Israel into the promised land. So it's almost like John the Baptist has this apocalyptic worldview where he thinks that through repenting of your sins and becoming bodily purified, because for him, these are kind of bleeding together. In order to be ritually pure, you also have to be purified of your sins. You have to repent. For him, he has this apocalyptic worldview where he's basically enacting the children of Israel coming into the promised land. While he's also evoking the imagery of the Red Sea crossing. It's as if John the Baptist is saying, God is going to become king over all creation in much the same way that he did in our past. All right. So then Yeshua gets baptized. Praise the Lord. <laughs> but through this, we not only see him identifying with John's message that in order to get into the kingdom of God, you have to repent. But we also see an utmost concern for ritual purity. Yeshua is not only identifying with the message, but he's also showing concern for the purity system. All right, so let's dive into that a bit further. I want to go to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. Sorry, Toby, I'm going to sit down and give you a break. How about that? 
he was asked to help and he didn't know he was going to have to follow me around. I'm just going to be in the first chapter of Mark. And I'm going to start in verse 40. I'll give everybody a second to get there. This is the story of Yeshua and a leper. Not a leopard, a leper. All right, verse 40. So a leper came to him, begging him. And kneeling, he said to him, If you choose, you can make me pure. Yours probably says clean, but for the sake of keeping everything consistent, I'm going to use the word pure. It can be translated either way. So he says, If you choose, you can make me pure. Moved with pity or compassion, Yeshua stretched out his hand and touched him. What did he do? Okay, that's important. He touched him and said to him, I do choose. Be made pure. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was made pure. And after sternly warning him, he sent him away at once, saying to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for cleansing what Moshe commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely, and spread the word so that Yeshua could no longer go into a town openly, but stayed out in the country, and people came to him from every quarter. All right. So, first and foremost, what we don't see here is compassion over and against the purity system. It does say that he moves with compassion toward him. But what Yeshua does not say is, hey, whoa, Mr. Leper, haven't you heard the good news? I'm here. So you don't even have to be concerned with your leprosy and your impurity. Come as you are. That is what we do not see him say. We see a man who is concerned with ritual purity because he heals him of his impurity. He wants the man to approach God's presence at the temple again. He shows concern for the man's purity. And what Mark has just under the surface there, this is again the first chapter of his gospel. What he has just under the surface there is Yeshua removing a force of death. So in the first chapter of his gospel, which starts with the good news of Yeshua the Messiah, we we find Israel's king undoing death. Are you tracking? Okay. So look, let's talk about leprosy for a second. I'm not going to do a deep dive. Uh, PJ has done a really, really good deep dive on leprosy more than once, I think. You can go find it in the archives. So one of the things about leprosy that we have to understand is it doesn't mean Hansen's disease. What we would call leprosy if someone was in an ER room or the hospital right now trying to get over leprosy. That is not what it means. It means a variety of skin conditions. Okay. Anything from like uh, eczema to dandruff. If you have it, you're a leper. Okay? It's an impure. See, it's natural. It's a natural source. The impurity system just sort of assumes that you're going to be impure at some point in your life. Okay? 
But here's again Jacob Milgram, that, that Leviticus scholar, that Jewish scholar. He says the main clue for understanding leprosy in the impurity system is that it, it is an aspect of death. Its bearer is treated like a corpse. Numbers 12, 12. This is whenever Miriam contracts leprosy. Do not let her be like one stillborn, which is a, just a terribly awful image, but do not let her look dead anymore, whose flesh is half consumed when it comes out of its mother's womb. This is 2 Kings 5. 2 Kings 5, verse 7. Uh, Naaman, whenever he contracts leprosy, Naaman, who I just talked about in the Jordan River, see, they... The, the Arameans hear that there's a prophet in Israel who can, who can heal. So they send word to King, uh, I think it's uh, Jehoram, I think, if I'm not mistaken. They send word to him and say, Naaman's coming. Because Naaman is uh, the captain of the king's guard, of the foreign king's guard. So this is, this is how the king responds. 2 Kings 5-7. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God? To give death or life? We're talking about a man who has leprosy. Am I God to give death or life? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. So the king freaks out. He's like, uh-uh. I don't hold life and death in my hand. And he's talking about a leper. Do you see how they are seeing this as death? As a type of death. As, a, as someone who has died. This is from Josephus, who is a contemporary of Yeshua. He's a second temple Jew. And for the lepers, he suffered them not to come into the city at all, talking about Moses, nor to live with any others, as if they were, in effect, dead persons. And this is from the Babylonian Talmud, uh, Nedarim 64b. Leprosy is the equivalent of death. As it is written, let her not be as one dead, referring back to that passage in Numbers. So, it's like Yeshua came into contact with the walking dead here. This man walks up and says, um, if you're willing, make me pure. And what did he do? What did he do to the man? He touched him. Why is that important? Because he's what? Because he's holy. Remember what two forces are contagious? Holiness and impurity. So in this case the holiness swallowed up the impurity. But he's still so concerned with ritual purity and the purity system that he healed the man of the impurity and what did he still say go do? Offer the appropriate offering. See, I, I'm glad you said that. He's still a Jew. See, this is what really bothers me. I'm going to get off on a rant really quick. Thank you. This is what really bothers me. No, seriously, this is what really, really bothers me. We love to celebrate Yeshua's Judaism, except for all the ways that it matters, that it truly matters that he's Jewish. Like worldview and thought and practice. If he doesn't practice Judaism or any Judaism that looks like the Judaism of his day, he's not Jewish. As Hanok says, he's a Jew by accident of birth. I believe he's a Jew. All right. So, <laughs> let's move on. Go to Mark 5. The reason why I'm doing Mark is because it's what most scholars believe is the first gospel. I might have already said that. I might not. So that's why I'm kind of here hanging out in Mark. Because this would have been the first writing about the good news 
of Yeshua and these readers on the first chapter encounter a Messiah who's undoing death. Okay, I'm going to read I'm going to read all of chapter 5. Are you guys still okay? Do you promise? Okay. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with a what? An impure spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. And Mark is very crafty. Mark is very crafty and very smart. Yeshua just gave a parable about binding a strong man, talking about evil spirits. And now here we have a strong man afflicted by an impure spirit that no one can bind. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces. And no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. So he's hurting himself. When he saw Yeshua from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Yeshua, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Does this feel apocalyptic to you guys? God setting right the impure things of this world to undo death? Okay, just wondering, just checking. See, the book of Revelation isn't the only apocalyptic text in our New Testament. The New Testament bleeds with apocalypticism. So I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, come out of the man, you impure spirit. Then Yeshua asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion. For we are many. And Miss Sylvia just talked about this on Wednesday night. Why might this be um, important? What is a legion? It's a, it's a Roman military unit. Yeah. So we're seeing here not just a king who's undoing death, but the name of this deadly impure force has to do with their oppressor. My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding. The unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, where they drowned in the sea. Okay. I want to go ahead and skip down to verse 21. Skip down to verse 21. When Yeshua had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet, and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. So up to this point, is it even suspenseful anymore if you're a first century reader of Mark? In the first chapter, Yeshua encounters a leper and touches him and transfers his holiness into the person, his contagious holiness, and undoes death. Now he healed a demoniac. And so now there's literally a dead girl. Okay? So are you really in suspense? Or, are you just, or is your heart just racing? My little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so she may be well and live. And he went with him. And here we get a little Mark and Sandwich, where Mark sandwiches another story in the middle of another story. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman 
who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. That's one of the impurities. She's having a discharge. She had endured much under many physicians. In other words, they mangled her. And had spent all that she had. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Yeshua and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Immediately, her discharge stopped. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone out from him, Yeshua turned around in the cloud and said, who touched my clothes? So what's going on here? Again, if we don't understand holiness and impurity as contagious forces, this feels weird. Mark is going out of his way to talk about Yeshua feeling power exit him. See, what he's doing is he's essentially making Yeshua a walking holy space. He's a walking, talking temple who is contagious with holiness. It flows out of him, and anything that touches him, his holiness swallows it up. So just like if you only touch the altar in the temple, the holiness is transferred. She only touched his garment, and the holiness was transferred. You don't even have to go into the presence. Yeah. It's exactly like that. Yes, it's exactly like that. Plugging in your appliance to the plug, you don't have to plug it into the power line. The electricity works. So here, this, this woman suffering from impurity, which is akin to a type of death, is healed. All right, so let's skip down again. Verse 35, we're back with the leader of the synagogue. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's home to say, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? I want to just stop here for a second. One of the most fascinating things and one of the most brilliant things I think God ever did was that he didn't send a Messiah with a sword in his hand. He sent a teacher. And while I may be biased because I teach for a living, um, the thing about teachers is they, they don't just, whereas a king just to feature your enemies and gives everything to you on a silver platter, a teacher equips you. A teacher equips you to deal with the difficulties of life. A teacher creates mental maps by which you navigate the world. So God sent a rabbi to redeem the world. Verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Yeshua said to the leader of the synagogue, don't fear. Ugh, my translation says only believe. Uh, the Greek word is uh, pistos. Um, it's, it, it has a connotation of loyalty. So if we're talking about a king, why would loyalty be important? Those are the types of people you give your loyalty to. I think maybe trust might be better, but that still doesn't really do it. I don't know if we have a good English word. So he says, don't fear, only trust. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. They had already hired the, the mourning party. The professional mourners had already come out with their instruments. They were already having a funeral. When he entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child's not dead, she's sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside, took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, 
and went in where the child was. Everyone in that room is impure now. This is the strongest form of impurity, a corpse. You can contract it from just being in the same room. You don't even have to touch it. So he says, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up or rise. Mark is, is playing and having fun with the fact that, or lift up. He's having fun with the fact that the Son of Man will be lifted up at the cross where God confronts and undoes death. Okay, just making sure you're tracking. Which means little girl get up, and immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years old. At this they were overcome with amazement. And again, he strictly ordered them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Apparently when you die and come back, you're hungry. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Yes. Yeah, so she got up. Yeah. Right. Well, I hope she's alive, or else my lesson sucks. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but no, you're right. No, no, no. No, no, you're right. You're right. All right, so I want to I zero in one more time on the, on the demons, and then I'm going to hopefully wrap this show up. All right? So I want to be honest. I'm a postmodern human being living in a postmodern world. Skepticism is in my DNA. It is very hard for me to imagine that there are evil demonic forces out there preying on people, but I'm open. Doesn't mean that I'm mad at it or think that it's all garbage. However, what's very important for us is that Second Temple Jews did believe it. Apocalyptic Jews believed it. And we go to the Tanakh and we, we just think to ourselves like, oh, I can't find anything that has anything to do with demons or, un, or impure spirits, as Mark puts it. Well, I'm here to ruin your, your day. So, um, let's see. In 1 Samuel 18 and 19, um, it says whenever King David plays the harp, uh, um, I think it's like a troubling spirit or something, leaves Saul. 2 Kings 19, verse 7, and Isaiah 37, 7, speak of the same event, where God tells Isaiah that he has spent, that he has sent a troubling spirit to King Hezekiah. Then we get verses like Deuteronomy 32, which most scholars would say is not a priestly text. Remember, priests are not concerned with the demonic. They sacrificed to demons, not God, to deities they had never known, to new ones recently arrived whom your ancestors had not feared. That's Deuteronomy 32, verse 17. Psalm 106, 37, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. The, Greek, or the Hebrew word there is, uh, is shed. And then this is the fascinating one. Psalm 96.5, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible that was translated during the Second Temple period, says this, For all the gods of the nations are demons, but the Lord made the heavens. So we see that Second Temple Jews are starting to develop this demonology. They're associating these impure spirits with being separate from God. And then you have books like Jubilees, which is in my Bible, the book of Tobit, those are apocryphal books. You have pseudepigraphical works like the Book of Watchers, which is an Enochian book. Uh, and then if you read Philo, 
the Qumran scrolls, if you read in Josephus, they talk about a very active divine world of angels and demons. What, is, what I really want to zero in on here is the way Mark carefully describes these impure spirits. He focuses most on how physically debilitating these spirits are. They're causing the person to hurt themselves. And the person who is afflicted cannot really live. They're alive, but they're not living. And all of these, all of these impure spirits in the Second Temple Jewish mindset and in their literature is associated with the realm of impurity and death. Really quickly, I want to go back to Mark 1. So I lied a little earlier, and that's a sin, so I'm going to repent publicly. Before the leper, Mark actually shows a Messiah who undoes death. I just wanted to save this for the end because I thought it was cool. All right, so Mark 1, verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an impure spirit, and he cried out, listen to what he says, What have you to do with us, Yeshua of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the what? The Holy One of God. But Yeshua rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying with a loud voice came out of him. They were amazed, and they said, What is this? So here we have again, and this is the very beginning of Mark's gospel. This is actually the first act of Yeshua's public ministry for Mark. Mark's concern is that you see that Yeshua is undoing death. All of the gospels have their own hallmark. They all start his ministry in their own way because they want remember they have an agenda as we've talked about they want you to see their message about him and for Mark he wants you to know that Yeshua of Nazareth is the one in whom we have hoped that will set this world right bring the kingdom of God and undo death from the first chapter and he's presented as the holy one of God the contagious force opposed to the impure force of the demon. Alright, so we've talked about the Second Temple world. We've looked at various cases of Yeshua undoing death in his ministry in the book of Mark. So, remember earlier I said that the Tanakh is surprisingly silent? It's because it's not explicit about the resurrection of the dead. And in fact, they like to equate the resurrection of the dead with the return from exile, which is why it's not so explicit. But Ezekiel 37 is the best example of this. The, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. Hashem appears to him and says, Son of man, can these bones live? And he's like, um, probably not. <laughs> and by the way, Ezekiel's mortified. He's a priest. Standing in the most unclean place he can stand. He's in a, he's in a valley of dry bones. So then he tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones... And flesh comes on them and they become living, breathing human beings again. And God says, this is like the whole house of Israel. So death and exile are 
closely together. Remember, think Eden. You have to see how all these themes, this death and undoing of death, all go together. Are, are you guys doing okay? Then in Hosea 6, verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord. Let's make Shuva repent. For it is he who has torn, and he will heal us. He has struck down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Hosea 13. Shall, uh, this is 13 verses uh, 14 and 15. Hosea 13, verses 14 and 15. Shall I ransom them from the power of the grave? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O grave, where is your destruction? For compassion is hidden from my eyes. In other words, he tells the prophet, I won't rescue them from the grave. But do you see how this is all associated with exile, which is the context of Hosea, and the undoing of exile is like an undoing of death? Yep. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live, their corpses shall rise. O dwellers in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a radiant dew, and the earth will give birth to those long dead. Daniel 12, verses 2 and 3. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Remember, Daniel's an apocalyptic book. So we do have a prophetic hope of God somehow setting the world right, restoring his kingdom, and undoing death. But there's another story. You guys still all right? There's another story besides Eden and the prophets that has to do with God exercising his control over life and death. It has, it's a story about passing through waters, this image of purification and being reborn being saved from oppression and death, which was at your heels moments before. The Exodus is a kingdom of God story. In the Exodus, the people are rescued from death through the blood of a lamb, which is the New Testament loves that image. They are rescued from death. They pass through the waters. They get their Sinai moment shortly thereafter. But right after they pass through the waters... Moses sings a song, the song of the sea. And the last line is the first time that God is called king. The last line of the song of the sea. He says, the Lord will reign forever and ever. That's Exodus 15, verse 18. The Exodus is much more than redemption and the giving of the Torah. It's the kingdom of God story. It's God rescuing his people from death. It's him bringing them to Mount Sinai where he teaches them how to live with him in their midst so that he can dwell with them. The temple itself is a kingdom of God's story. It's a restoration of the Garden of Eden. It is an undoing of death. God sets up his presence in the midst of the people and the tabernacle mimics Eden. And eventually... Once they get it all set up and just right, after the people say, everything you've, done, you've said, Hashem, we will do, Kavod Hashem, the glory of the Lord, settles and dwells there in their presence. So, now I'm going to try to bring this thing to a close as best I can. There, the prophets love to imagine 
that on the day when God redeems his people, it will be on par with the Exodus. Okay? You, you hear this image, this um, language all the time of a new Exodus or a greater Exodus. I would argue that the Exodus is already great and huge. The prophets are saying that this redemption is going to be on par with that great and huge thing. Let's go to Isaiah 40. start in verse 1. These are familiar lines. Isaiah 40. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, or call out to her, that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Do you guys remember which sect of Judaism we said took this verse to heart the Essenes a voice cries out in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make straight in the desert a highway for our God where have we where do we hear this in all of the synoptic gospels this verse is associated with John the Baptist and why why does this have anything to do with anything Kyle what does this have anything to do with anything a voice cries out where? Oh. What is the only moment in Israel's story that is meaningful that has anything to do with the wilderness? The exodus and the aftermath. When God dwelled with them in the desert. And it says, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It recalls the, like when God literally made the path straight in the waters. And then guided them the whole way to the promised land. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord, the what? The kavod, the glory of the Lord, shall be revealed. Come on, guys, it doesn't get better than this. Can you guys guess what the Greek word under this is in the Septuagint? The glory of the Lord will be apocalypsed. It doesn't get better than this, guys. I'm telling, I'm telling you, this is, this is good. The glory of the Lord will be apocalypsed, and all people shall see it together. It will be uncovered. For the mouth of Hashem has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are, gra are grass. The ruach of the Lord. The grass withers. The flowers fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Get up. To a high mountain, O Zion, herald of what? Good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Are your, are your gospel bells ringing? I hope. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. So we have John the Baptist in the wilderness associated with Isaiah 40. Verses 1 and following. And remember what I said? He is saying here, God is on the move. He is ready now to do the very things that he has done for our people in the past. 
God is going to do the same sorts of things that made him king in the Exodus story again. Let's go to Isaiah 52. This Exodus imagery is all over the prophets, but Isaiah loves it. He can't stop himself. I'm going to start in verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put up your beautiful garments, or put on your beautiful garments, sorry. O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the impure shall enter you no more. God's going to undo death. Shake yourself from the dust. Oh, what does that mean? Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Is, this a, is he alluding to death here? Just asking, just asking questions of the text. <laughs> Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, long ago my people went down into Egypt. Uh-oh, we're talking Exodus. My people went down into Egypt to reside there as aliens. The Assyrian, too, has oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what I am doing here, says the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away without cause, their rulers howl, says the Lord, and continually all day long my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. How beautiful, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings what? Good news who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Uh-oh, we, we just got the undoing of death, the exodus, and the kingdom of God. Listen, your sentinels lift up their voices. Together they sing for joy, for in plain sight they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm. Isaiah loves to talk about the arm of the Lord. Why is that important? That's an Exodus image. God says with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, he redeemed his people. He says he's going to stretch out his arm and smite Egypt. The arm of the Lord is a powerful Exodus imagery that Isaiah uses all throughout his book. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nations, and all, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of it. Purify yourselves. You who carry the vessels of Hashem, you shall not go into haste, and you shall not go in flight, but Hashem will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up, and shall be very high. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of mortals. So he shall startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them, they shall see." They'll be apocalypsed. And that which they had not heard, they shall contemplate. And here we go. The famous chapter. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the what? The arm of the Lord, the arm of the Lord been revealed. Even the suffering servant passage is an Exodus passage. What the suffering servant does in Isaiah 53... Isaiah says is on par with the Exodus. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a, dry, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with, with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised, and we held no account 
Now, I'm just asking questions of the text. Isaiah is going to go on to talk about how the servant did this on behalf of my people. And he's using the first person pronouns here like we. So is the servant Israel? Right? That's one interpretation. I'm not, look, I'm trying to get between the extremes here. I'm not saying that Isaiah saw on a perfect TV Yeshua of Nazareth. Because I agree with what Joe said. A text cannot mean what it did not mean to the original audience. But I also don't know if the servant being Israel fits best. I'm just asking questions of the text. That's all. Surely, verse 4, he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that has made us whole. And by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. And Hashem has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that was before its shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By perversion of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Stricken for the transgression of my people. Again of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin or an asham, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So, my main point here is that I think this passage is sometimes too embroiled in Jewish versus Christian debate, and we miss that this is, for Isaiah, an Exodus-like event that I think he already is beginning to imagine a heroic figure will accomplish. I'm not saying for him that he saw Yeshua on a TV screen. I think, in fact, most of Isaiah 53 evokes imagery of Joseph. But, still, he sees this as an exodus. This is literally just chapters, like the last chapter, 52, is full of exodus imagery. And then he begins chapter 53 with the arm of the Lord. So, Think about this. We have God who wants to dwell again with humans, who wants to undo death. He wants to, in, who, he wants to end exile and the removal of his presence. And the prophets imagine, specifically Isaiah, that he will do it in an Exodus-like way. So now let's think about everything that we've learned about the gospel accounts. We have this man named Yeshua of Nazareth who comes on the scene and passes through the waters and then goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And then once he's done in the wilderness, he goes up on a cosmic mountain and starts to expound on the Torah. This is Exodus. So, if you're a first century Jew and you see this weird guy wearing a goat shirt or a camel shirt or whatever it is, in the wilderness, and, he said, and he's saying, repent for the kingdom of God is here. 
He's going on and on about Isaiah 40. You're intrigued. You're going to go and see what's up. Or another apocalyptic Jewish rabbi comes on the scene, and he says, Moed Hashem is here. The Moed. What does Moed mean? Appointed time. The appointed time is here. Repent of your sins, for the kingdom of God is at hand. See, we're, we have a lullaby effect. This is Christianese for us. But if you are a first century Jew, either hearing it or reading it, your heart is racing. You cannot, you, you, you are asking yourself, is this it? Is God now going to make the world right? Is the kingdom of God going to come back to this earth? And is God going to set right all that's wrong? Is he going to, through an exodus-like event, restore our people and undo death? You can't stop flipping pages or going through the scroll. So, he, he goes up on the mountain, expounds on the Torah, and then he does something really interesting. He chooses the time of Passover to go up to Jerusalem. He chooses the time of Passover. For him, this is all political stuff. This is all resistance, kingdom of God stuff. And he goes right up to the priests and the aristocracy, who are depicted like Pharaoh, by the way. And he says... And I'm going to be crass because I want it to fall on your ears the way it would have fallen on those priest's ears. He says, hey, um, sorry, there's, there's children. Uh, whores and race traders will get into the kingdom of God before you. And they go, excuse me? And uh, so he, he doesn't last very long up there in Jerusalem. So he confronts Pharaoh He's killed on a cross, and then three days later, God undoes death. But it gets better. Remember, the Exodus is a kingdom of God story. What is the whole point of God redeeming his people, giving them the Torah at Sinai, delivering them from the clutches of death? What is the whole point? The house. The house. So then what happens? Luke, the author of Acts, tells us what happens. Shortly after all of these events, something happens where the Spirit is poured out on all people. The, the indwelling presence of the living God invades sacred space. God is basically, what, what these authors are trying to convey to you is that God has indeed done the thing that he promised. And by giving the Spirit, it's, a, it's a, a stamp of new creation. God, again, dwelling among human beings. God undoing death. Because, you see, whenever Yeshua died and got up, our current age and the age to come came together. This is why the New Testament authors struggle with their language to describe what's happened. And the reason why it's confusing is because they don't have one single way to describe those events. They have many ways because they're trying to figure it out too. They don't know what to make of this crazy event either. So, let's go back to Paul. Now, I think the whole point 
of Luke's narrative of what happened at Shavuot and the Spirit is to show that this new community, they represent God's act of new creation, are empowered to move into the world. A student's only as good as his teacher. PJ says all the time that salvation is activation. I'm going to add some alliteration to that. Salvation is not just activation, it's invitation and participation. The goal is that we become Passover people. The goal is that we embody that story of God rescuing people from death so that his presence can live among them. Romans 6, 1 through 14. This is the most potent theology of the New Testament. For all of the crazy things that Paul says that we can't quite get a grip on or that we find confusing, these are some of the verses, in my opinion, that matter most. Romans 6, 1 through 14. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By the way, who is he, who is he writing to here? This is the book of Romans. So he's writing to Romans a predominantly non-Jewish community that is having trouble in Rome, and there's some struggle with the Jewish people who believe in Yeshua in Rome, which is why he does a lot of, uh, you're grafted in, all that stuff, okay? But he's talking to a predominantly Gentile crowd. That's important for what I'm about to say in just a second. So he's telling them, uh, don't, don't sin. Verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? And if you're having this letter read to you in the first century, you're going, what are you talking about? I didn't die. I'm alive. Well, he goes on to explain, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Messiah Yeshua were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Messiah was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Messiah, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Messiah being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but, he li- but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Messiah Yeshua. Paul doesn't assume that you're never going to sin again. He's asking, he's inviting you. He's activating and inviting you to participate in the Passover kingdom of God story. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer, pres- no longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And present your members to God as instruments of justice. One more. 2 Corinthians 5. 14 through 21. For the love of Messiah urges us on. Because we are convinced that one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all. So that those who might live no longer live for themselves. But for whom who died as, and was raised for them. Sorry, But for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. He's getting apocalyptic here. We no longer regard anyone from a human point of view, even though we once knew Messiah from a human point of view. We know him no longer that way. 
So if anyone is in Messiah, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled, who reconciled us to himself. We're talking about presence and proximity. Coming back into the presence. Through Messiah and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Messiah, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Messiah. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Messiah, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we might. So, the reason why it's hard to explain the New Testament is because with it comes an unveiling. And I don't mean that if anyone here or there, I'm assuming we're still live streaming, if you're struggling with the New Testament, something isn't revealed to you. That's not what I mean. I just mean that whenever you come to believe this thing, you have to see the world a new way. Because God did something that should not be allowed to happen, which is a human being was raised from the dead. Not because someone laid hands on him or prayed for him, but because God in his power vindicated that man and raised him up. And the, world, the current world and the world to come now overlap. The kingdom of God is here and also not yet. So, because Yeshua has been raised, we know that we will as well, because he will defeat death. So what Paul is saying is, that future goal of your bodily resurrection should inform the life that you live now. You have been given the message of reconciliation. You are to have contagious holiness that swallows up impurity. You are given the life and message and mission and vocation of a risen Messiah. It's given to you. Now that can be heavy because, you know, 360 some odd days of the year I suck. So... I get that. The point isn't to make you feel worse. The point is to try to encourage you and empower you and to invite you. Okay, so Paul is writing to a Gentile audience there. Paul's whole argument here is based on the fact that these people are still trying to get their mess together. Like months ago, they didn't even know God. Months ago, they didn't even know God. His whole argument about why Gentiles should not convert has nothing to do with anything wrong with Judaism. He thinks Judaism's great. He stays a Jew, a faithful one. His point is that Israel comes into covenant because of the Exodus. Because of the Exodus. Because of the giving of the Torah. You're born a Jew and then you're circumcised. A ritual act makes you pure on the eighth day. Paul's argument is a different Exodus brought you to the dance. So now, you can too have a Sinai moment. And you can say, God, what you said to your people, everything you said, I will do as well. Now it is on us. It is firmly on our shoulders to be image bearers in the world and to mimic the life and ministry of Yeshua to be people who confront the forces of life or who confront the forces of death with the power of life. Sometimes it's a large act, sometimes it's a small one. 
And all I'm going to ask is that you really, really look at your life and the way that you treat others, speak about them, and I'm going to say watch out for that devil called the media. We, we spend so much time in that 24-7 news cycle that it creates fear and anxiety and fosters hate and division among other red-blooded human beings. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says that one of the problems with morality in the West is not that it, the main problem with morality in the West is that we have no common identity anymore because we're all divided. You can't create a, a center of morality if you're all divided. So it's not going to be experienced leadership for America or change or making America great again. I hope I nailed every slogan from the last three decades. It's not going to be any of that. It's going to take a people who love their enemies. It's going to take leaders who love the American people more than they love their wallets and more than they hate the other side of the aisle. And it is on us. The message of reconciliation is given to us. We have had an exodus event. We have crossed from life, from death into new life. And there's work to be done. I believe in one sola, sola bootstrapper. Let's put our bootstraps on and get to work. So that's all I have. It was long. But to me, this is the crux of the New Testament's message.